3: Just a quick note that today's episode is going to be a rerun. The next season of the Psychology Podcast will begin later this year. I haven't taken any break in five years of doing this podcast, so I thought it was about time to take a step back and think about how I can make this a better experience for you all. Until then, enjoy these episodes from our archives today we have helen fisher on the show helen is a research associate in the department of anthropology at rutgers university and is chief scientific director to the online matchmaking site match.com she has written many best-selling books including anatomy of love and why we love thank you so much for uh, agreeing to talk to me today helen i'm delighted you know i'm a long time fan of your work um, thank you and uh and colleague and uh you know you wrote the foreword to the mating intelligence book that I wrote with Glenn, and we were so giddy when you agreed to write that. You, know, you should have seen us behind the scenes. We are like little teenage boys.
1: Uh, we both <laughs> have a crush on you. Good. So,
3: <laughs> um, so I, I, let me start by asking why you, um, or how you got interested in studying the science of love. Were you fascinated with love as a phenomenon as a child?
1: I, I, looking back on it, um, I think it stems from the fact that I'm an identical twin. And, you know, as a child, when you're an identical twin, everybody asks you, do you like the same food? Do you do you have the same friends? Do you have the same cavity in your teeth? So long before I knew there was something called the nature-nurture controversy, the nature-nurture argument, I was very busy measuring how much of my own behavior was biological and how much of it was cultural. And so then um, I got into graduate school. And at that time, of course, nobody uh, believed that there was any biology to behavior. So that was, I remember having to once... Um, answer incorrectly on an exam. I was supposed to say that there was no biology to behavior. And of course, I said that even though I was an identical twin, and I knew perfectly well that there was. But anyway, I think that I finally came to thinking that if there was any part Of our behavior that would have biological uh, origins, it would be behavior linked with sex and love. Because, as you and I both know, as Darwin said, you know, if you have four children and I have no children, you live on and I die out. So the game of love matters. It matters to to your heritage, uh, to your past, uh, uh, to setting your DNA on into tomorrow. So I figured there's got to be some biology to these basic. Reproductive behaviors, and so I really started first uh, with the question: you know, why? Why do we bother to form pair bonds? I mean, ninety-seven percent of mammals do not pair up to rear really their young, and people do. Uh, why do we do this? So I started with that, and then I moved into well, okay, you, we form these pair bonds, and I'd written a book on it, Anatomy of Love, uh, and then I said, well, why do we divorce? <laughs> why do we with? Why do we go back and do it all over again? You know, Samuel John Johnson once said, you know. Uh, He he called remarriage the triumph of hope over experience, and indeed, you know, that's what we do. So that led me into these basic uh, brain systems. And then one night, I was walking through a Greenwich Village in New York by myself, and it suddenly occurred to me, could we have evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction that would orchestrate all of our falling in love, marrying, adultery, divorce, etc.? And I began to think, maybe we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems that evolved from mating and reproduction, sex drive being one, feelings of intense romantic love being the second, and feelings of deep attachment being the third. So and then I thought to myself, well, maybe I should people, put people in brain scanners. I mean, brain scanning was just beginning in the in the mid-90s, and I thought to myself, well, maybe I could see the brain pathways for these different uh, brain systems and then come to understand the evolution of them. So. It was a sort of a long, slow growth. Wow.
3: Wow. <laughs> well, did you, I mean, did you ever have any like personal experiences in love where you're like, I have to understand like what just happened there? <laughs> like, well, you um, know, like how, how personal is this?
1: Everybody would like to think that somebody like me has a very personal thing. I mean, I've fallen in love many times. You're um, human. You're human. Yeah. I mean, I've been single almost all of my life, but uh, I've certainly lived with several men, yeah. had, had five long and very powerful love affairs and deep attachments to them. And yeah. But, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm an anthropologist. I really am interested in the evolution of these things. I must say, you know, I'm now studying personality, as I'm sure you know. Right. And one personality style is think with the dopamine system. Uh, and these people tend to be curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic. And I read something recently that they also not very interested in who they are. They look out, not in, and that's pretty much what I've done in my life. I'm not terribly interested in who Helen Fisher is, or and I don't really see any. I, I mean, isn't every teenager interested in sex and love and marriage and, and courtship? I mean, I, I don't think I was any different. I had lots of love affairs, and but uh, I I think the reason I chose to go into this field. Is an intellectual one uh, yeah. that that in fact, these love makes the world go round. I mean, it really does. It's so it's a powerful part of of life in every single culture in the world, and it had to have evolved. And that's what interested me. So, why do you think
3: they call it falling in love? Why is that the expression? And I think your actual your neuroscience research probably uh, is consistent with that phrasing, right?
1: You know, romantic love is like a sleeping cat. It can be. Awakened at any second, um, uh, attachment that other brain system is um, it grows much more slowly, and I think it's the concept is falling because it is so helpless. You know, Stendhal once said, "Love is like a fever; it comes and goes quite independently of the will." And indeed, it does. I mean, boom—you can, you can—I felt it in this second. You know, I mean, one i remember with one man. You know, uh, I just made love to him actually, and and I sat at the edge of the bed and I said. I just fell in love with you (laughs) and I remained in love with him for over 15 years. So it's a brain system and it can be triggered at any time. And I think that's where the falling, you know, you don't climb into it. You don't mean to climb into it often. You trip over it and fall into it.
3: I think that's very true based on my experience as well. But when you say you just made love to him, do you mean like just before this podcast?
1: No, 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 no. Oh. <laughs> just before I fell madly in love with them. Oh,
3: gosh, gotcha. you're saying at that time I and mean exactly you had just fallen. Okay, I want to <laughs> clarify that. I, sure qu- I, <laughs> I want to clarify that, like, just before the psychology podcast was skybreak often. Okay, so... um you know i try to you, you've done a you've done great and remarkable research looking uh showing why some people fall in love with others and the critical factors. Would you mind just telling um the uh, listeners some of those critical factors that have been shown to robustly um, influence attraction and and love
1: great um you know this was very hard for me I mean I've worked on it for over fifteen years. What's interesting about it is I thought that the hardest thing I would do with my life is get people who were madly in love into a brain scanner and studied the brain circuitry of it, but actually that's nowhere near as complicated as um, why you choose one person rather than another. And as you know, I wrote a book on it called Why Him, Why Her? And there's all kinds of psychological reasons why somebody falls in love with one person rather than another. I mean. We tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence, uh, uh, same uh, level of good looks, uh, same interests, same social and political and not political, social and religious values. There's many cultural reasons that you fall in love with one person rather than another. Another is what people call your love map. As a small child, we grow up and we um, have a lot of experiences that make us like this kind of person rather than that. But you know, you can walk into a room, Scott, and- Every person in that room is from your background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same basic kind of childhood, and you don't fall in love with all of them. So I began to think to myself, well, maybe chemistry, basic body chemistry can be uh, involved. I mean, wouldn't natural selection be pretty shoddy if we hadn't developed any patterns to make choice that would have been adaptive millions of years ago? So I began to look at brain... um, Uh, any trait at all linked with any brain system. And as it turns out, there's all kinds of brain systems, but most of them keep the eyes blinking or the heart beating. They're not linked with personality traits. So anyway, four brain systems are linked with personality traits, the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems. And I began to think to myself, maybe I can make a questionnaire to see to what degree you express the traits linked with each of these four basic brain systems and then watch on this dating site chemistry.com a a subsidiary of match.com and see if anybody is naturally drawn to certain types and as it turns out there are patterns to culture there's patterns to nature there's patterns to personality and there's biological patterns to make choice and here's what i found people who are very expressive of the dopamine system um, tend to be, as I mentioned, novelty-seeking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, mentally flexible, and they're that's drawn- me. That's you, kid. You described me to a T. <laughs> and me too. I have dopamine pumping <laughs>
3: out of the kazoo's. There's no question about it. I knew yeah, that. Whatever that means, what I just said, but yeah, you know what I mean.
1: You know what I mean. <laughs> exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And they're drawn to people like themselves. Uh, uh, curious, creative people want people like themselves. The second are the people who are very traditional, people very expressive of the traits linked in the serotonin system. Okay. They are traditional, conventional, follow the rules, respect authority, tend to be religious. Reli- uh, standard religiosity is in the serotonin system. They tend to be concrete and literal. They like schedules and plans, and, um, and uh, they're drawn to people like themselves. Traditional is drawn to traditional. In the third and fourth two categories, it's the reverse. The opposites attract. People are very high testosterone. Somebody like uh, Steve Jobs is very drawn to somebody who's very high estrogen. High testosterone people tend to be analytical, logical, direct, decisive, good at things like math or engineering or mechanics or computers or music. Um, They tend to be skeptical, um, very assertive, uh, like to debate. And they fall really for their opposite. They high estrogen type, the high estrogen type tends to be very imaginative, sees the big picture, quite intuitive, good verbal and people skills, uh, empathetic, uh, trusting, uh, and emotionally expressive. And in fact, the high estrogen goes for the high testosterone too. And an amusing current example of that would be Hillary and Bill Clinton. Hillary, because I think she's the high testosterone. I was going to say that. I was going to say that. Like, Like Margaret Thatcher. And uh, Bill is, he has, certainly has a lot of testosterone in him, but he also has a lot of high estrogen. I mean, he cries easily. He's the one that cried at the daughter's wedding. he, um, he He's a synthesizing uh, uh, thinker. Uh, the whole world knows he can't stop talking. Uh, he's very verbally skilled. He's emotionally skilled. He's good with people. Uh, and um, so, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, Americans wonder when we're going to have our first president. We've had our first president with Bill Clinton. I mean, first female uh, president. president. Bill Clinton. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to quote you on that. (laughs) I love that. Oddly enough, I even think uh, Abraham Lincoln was very high estrogen, very skilled with words, very empathetic, very compassionate, very contextual thinker, um, wanted a consensus, uh, had a hard time making important decisions. Uh, Yeah. So... Now, of course, we're all a combination of both of them. So you, uh, Scott, are probably dopamine and what, testosterone?
3: Well, I think that uh, when I'm hearing you describe all these things, I'm like, that's me. That's me. That's Uh me.
1: So I I don't
3: know what to do now. I feel Uh like, you know, I can cry on a dime, but I can also, you know, I probably have too much testosterone and I probably have too much dopamine as well. What do you say?
1: Are you good at math?
3: Okay, so here's the thing. I'm not good at, uh, not good at visual spatial reasoning, actually. Okay. I'm, I'm not very good at that.
1: Are you tough minded?
3: Um, I do think so. I do think so, yeah. yeah.
1: The testosterone system breaks down into uh, two, mathematically, almost immediately into two subtypes. I oh. think uh, very characteristic of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Steve Jobs was a very tough minded guy really big time tough-minded yeah. he was not visually spatially skilled he he was not in his basement programming he's not a programmer
3: okay good so we can separate that because no right. i'm really not very good at uh in fact uh, on my iq tests um i my my distinction between my verbal my non-verbal <laughs> iq scores yeah. is like dramatic
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, same with yeah. me you may be be high dopamine and, and high estrogen which is it's a wonderful thing for a woman to be with a man who's like that because they can actually notice when you're crying, you know, that sort of thing. Well, no, so it's very interesting because, you know, you, uh, something I'm not, though, is
3: I'm not, like, sometimes I try to be, like, the bad boy, but it's really not part of my biology, and I realize that. Yeah. Um, but you look at, like, you know, this question of, like, why are bad boys attractive? And, but you often see a lot of bad boys, you know, with the really nurturing women, you know, like the really, like, the, the nursing types, you know, who like, want to kind of change them or help them. And right. I, so I think there's something going on there with this theory of yours as well. Why the opposite track there with testosterone and estrogen, you know, like maybe there is something going on there with like the attraction between the bad boy and the, the caring, nurturing female. Right? They
1: need each other. I mean, the high testosterone type is, is not very skilled with people. Uh, they don't have verbal and, and people skills, whereas the high estrogen type does. They're going to have very good conversations. Uh, the high testosterone type um, has a very deep, narrow uh, Understanding. I mean, they'll know all about—I don't know—the Civil War. They'll know all about electronics, or they'll know all about neuroscience. But they won't read widely and generally. Whereas the the high estrogen uh, probably knows somewhat less about an awful lot more, and they can have very good conversations. And of course, the uh, high testosterone tends to be tough-minded, whereas the high estrogen is is very tender-hearted. Uh, in many ways, they are complementary. In fact, I think these four broad. Uh, styles of may choice evolved um i think the high testosterone and the high estrogen have such very different qualities that it's a it was very adaptive for them to combine those qualities to raise their babies uh i think a different strategy would be the two high um uh traditional types the high serotonin type they're going to have a very solid relationship they may oh, yeah. the rest of their lives because everybody's has got the right way to do something and if you don't do it the right way, you're going to bicker about it. But in may, I mean, they're going to have very strong values. In fact, that's a word they use all the time. Uh, they're going to have, um, uh, and, and so they're going to run a sort of a, uh, of a, a strict ship and perhaps, uh, you know, uh, have lots of babies that grow up to have really good values. So that's another alternative mating strategy, which is adaptive. My question was always, what, why about, why about you and me? I mean, we're going to find people who are very high dopamine like ourselves, who are going to like novelty, are going to like excitement, are going to like, uh, are going maybe more prone to be promiscuous, um, uh, more charismatic. They're going to attract people to, to uh, you know, who might offer promiscuity. Et cetera. So why would they, why would that pattern have evolved of two high dopamine types seeking each other out? And my only hypothesis, and anybody else can have one too, certainly, is that, um, They may be more likely to have a whole series of partnerships. And with a series of partnerships, you're going to have babies by more than one person and create more genetic variety in your lineage. So I think we've basically evolved three profoundly basic styles of mate choice. One that creates a lot more babies with different partners, the traditional second type that, that creates a lot of babies with one partner with strict values. And the third type who meshes really interesting uh, variations to create a lot of variety in their young. I love this. That's a really good point. So I think that we can distinguish
3: between um, the drive for the for a variety of novelty, which you get from dopamine, and the those who have a tendency to cheat. And I think it's more um, the testosterone. I so, both. I both. Maybe, maybe it's both, but maybe like a combination of like, maybe yeah. testosterone and, and dopamine makes it more likely to be promiscuous and cheat. Um, yeah. But- um, I don't know. You know, you you've done a lot of research on why we cheat and the reasons why. Um, could you maybe um, uh, give give people some teasers on that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, on my website, I did a meta analysis in which I, I I listed all of the reasons why people cheat, so somebody could go to HelenFisher.com and get all of them. Oh, I'll put that on the show notes, by the way. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Um, I think it's called um, Infidelity: Who, When, Where, Why. I'm not first author it's a graduate student, but anyway, bottom line is, um, there's many cultural reasons why people cheat. I mean, if you ask somebody why they've cheated, they'll say, you know, well, I wanted to get caught and patch up the marriage. I wanted to get caught and break up the marriage. I wanted to supplement the marriage. I get lonely when my partner goes out of town. I, I, um, uh, I want to solve a sex problem. I want to walk a walk on the wild side. Uh, uh, I, I want to be admired by somebody new. Isn't, if you ask people around the world, there's so many cultural reasons, but one of the most interesting thing to me was a study in the 1980s in which, um, they asked, um, you know, why you were adulterous, et cetera. And as it turns out, 56% of men in that study and 34% of women in that study, um, said they were in extremely happy marriages. They weren't being adulterous because of a problem in the relationship, because of various cultural opportunities, because of a bad childhood. They just they were in happy marriages and they did it anyway. And that's what's so interesting to me, because I've looked at adultery in over 40 cultures. You find it in every single one, even where you can get your head chopped off for it. There's got to be some evolutionary payoffs for this. I'm not suggesting adultery, but to understand it as a scientist. So, I mean. We know some of the biology that contributes to adultery. There's a wonderful study that came out of Sweden uh, a few years ago, which they found a gene in the vasopressin system. And men who had um, two copies of that gene had the most unstable marriages. They weren't adulterous, but they had the most unstable marriages. Men with only one copy of that gene in the vasopressin system had more stable marriages. And men with no copies of that gene had the most stable marriages. So we're beginning to understand a little about that. And of course, with these three different brain systems that I talk about, sex drive, feelings of intense romantic love, and feelings of attachment, they're not always well connected. You know, you can feel deep attachment to a long-term partner and then swing wildly into feelings of romantic love for somebody else. And then suddenly feel the sex drive for somebody in the office or even on the street. So bottom line is brain architecture enables us to love more than one person at a time. And we're beginning to find some of the physiology connected with it too. So what would be the payoffs of this? And of course, as you know, you and I and everybody else in our field have been discussing this forever, but I don't buy the party line. The party line is that men are more adulterous uh, than women because um, they have um, they can spread more seed. Every time they have a, an extra sexual event, they can have a baby and spread more DNA. So that's adaptive. Sure, I can buy that. But then they, they go on in this argument to say, well, you know, women can't have a child each time that they... Uh, I have sex with a new partner, so it's to their advantage to hold on to the partner that they've got. Well, I don't think so. First of all, who are all these men sleeping with? Now, this is a basic math issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who are they sleeping with? Either there's an awful lot of women who are faithful and a few women who are sleeping with everybody. Let's go back a million years. Is it a man and a woman? They're walking along in a little hunting and gathering group, and occasionally she slips over the hill and has sex with somebody else. Well, what is she getting? She may have a, one more baby that might be nice, but uh i mean from a from a Darwinian perspective, you create more genetic variety and they're young but the bottom line is if her if her current partner dies or deserts her, she may have a have a insurance policy, somebody who uh will step in and, and help her out, and she will certainly get extra resources i mean men around the world uh give their adulterous partners everything from beer and food and vacations and money and forms of stability. And I think that uh, that that could have had real payoffs uh, for women for many, many millions of years, uh, hence leaving uh, this tendency, not only in men but in women, to be adults. It has, they have, it has payoffs for both sexes.
3: It makes a lot of sense. And also, you know, I just think of how unnatural monogamy is or how, you know, how much – that's really asking a species to have these three different drives all coalesce in one person and to be and just like for that to be optimally satisfying. Yeah, you know, it just seems like a hard thing to ask out of humans.
1: I, I think monogamy is natural. I think adultery is natural too. Okay. Monogamy, to 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 basic evolutionary psych people, means a pair bond. You can have a pair bond and not be sexually faithful to that pair. You can be socially. Faithful to that pair, but and that's why, as you know, that we call it social monogamy. I mean, you know, there's two people living in a in a house, and they've got children, and they go to work, and they behave like a pair bonded animals and are. Um, but if they both sneak around on the side, they're adulterous as well. So I, have, when I, when you really look around the world at all of the basic variations in reproductive strategy, you, you would and say you went and counted heads. How many people are living in that hut, in that teepee, in that igloo, in that apartment building? in that home. It's generally true. Almost everywhere in the world, we are an animal that forms pair months. We are also adulterous. We are both. We are an animal that, that has what I call a dual human reproductive strategy, a tremendous drive to pair up and rear our children as a team, and also a tendency uh, for adultery, divorce, and remarriage. And then with our large brain, with our cognitive processes, we make decisions about our lives. I mean, you know, and I think some people make their decisions more easily than others. It is my guess that certain personality styles have an easier time with, with uh with being faithful to a partner.
3: Yeah, I mean that's a good segue into the brain research on love that shows that uh your decision areas of the brain kind of uh the, the blood flow goes away
1: <laughs> so oh yeah it
3: kind of shuts down so, right
1: <laughs> yeah you when you fall in love basic brain regions uh in the prefrontal cortex uh, linked with decision making begin to begin to uh, uh yeah the the flood, the blood flows out just like you said and You're very poor at making decisions. I mean, you see somebody who's in love and, you know, she'll say to you or he'll say to you, oh, this person person is perfect for me. It doesn't matter that she's married, that she's got 10 children and she's got three heads. We'll get through that. Some people have a fetish for three heads. I bet there's a fetish
3: for everything, right? <laughs> Probably. Oh, but well, where do fetishes come in? Sorry, my mind just goes, makes associations all over the place. Where, where does that adapt it? What's the adaptive value of like liking to suck toes, for instance?
1: Oh, boy. Well, I don't study fetishes, but apparently men um, uh, have many more than women do. Uh, and I, 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 what I re- recall, and you might know more about this than I do, I would get, guess that you do, um, that— um, Why would you guess I would? <laughs> Oh, because you've written on this. Oh, yes. Of I've course. written on a lot of... Uh, scientifically, scientifically. Exactly. No, I didn't figure... I don't know. Are you into toe <laughs>
3: No, I'm not really, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, neither am I. But anyway, um, you know, it's, it's very valuable for men to pick up an, on any possible chance for sex. Uh, I mean, the, the woman is the custodian of the egg. We own the egg. You've got to inseminate that egg. And if you miss an opportunity to inseminate that egg, you may miss a, an opportunity to spread your DNA on into tomorrow.
3: So-, so- Isn't it really important though, like like who you sleep with? Like, isn't there great value like of making sure that it's going to be good genes, like as opposed to just having sex indiscriminately? Like, couldn't there be a good case to be made why it's not good to have sex, even though if you're a guy, to not have it indiscriminately?
1: Well, if you from can, an
3: evolutionary if, perspective
1: if they, if you can then walk out and never see the child or mother again, and there's no you know there's no reproductive fallout on you, you know I mean I think that's what most scientists are talking about the fact that you know in, in relatively indiscriminate um, sex on the part of man, if it has no well if they don't get a sex disease, of course, i mean you know and they don't spend a lot of metabolic energy on it, of course, uh, and if they don't get shamed from the culture for it. Uh, what have they got to lose. But the bottom line is men are much more fetishist than women are. Hmm. And um and I the classic this the classic hypothesis has been that they are more interested in sucking toes and other kinds of fetishes because sometime in their past, sucking toes or whatever it was, was linked with some sort of sexual opportunity. And so they have now gotten into their brain that these things are connected and that toe sucking is going to lead to sexual opportunity and, and, and unconsciously, of course, lead to to um, reproduction. So um, women are far less um, uh, uh, beleaguered by um, by uh, fetishes.
3: I think there are just as many women that go to furry conventions as men, but maybe they, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah. they, what kind of conventions? Furry conventions where they dress up as you know animals. Um, furry conventions. Yeah, yeah, they're called furry conventions. I'll put that in my show notes. Yeah, it's a well, fascinating subculture. It's a fascinating subculture.
1: Sounds a little bit like Halloween, I do Halloween, where you can just be somebody else. Maybe I mean I saw this uh,
3: TV special of all these different kind of fetishes. Some people have balloon fetishes, you know, and 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 maybe you're right. Maybe at some point in their life, like the balloon preceded a sexual opportunity or something, and it got imprinted or something. But right, um, it's just fascinating the human variation. You know, is so fascinating.
1: Yeah. Human variation is fascinating, but I've always been interested in. uh, in, I've been really dedicated my life to why we're all alike, instead of why we're all different. And here is where feelings of romantic love, feelings of attachment, the sex drive—we really all carry that those around in our head. How we express them is very different from one person to another, and one culture to the next. But the actual feelings are pretty much the same.
3: Yeah, you basically you've you've said at some point you said um, as long as humans survive these three drives will survive.
1: I think so. It's it's like the fear system, you know, and the anger system. These are basic survival mechanisms. As a matter of fact, um, uh, feelings of intense romantic love emanate from this reward system, the brain system for wanting, for craving, for obsession, for focus, and for motivation. And that system really starts in a tiny little factory way near in the basement of the mind, in the ventral tegmental area and that little brain region that really generates the dopamine to give you that feeling of romantic love that little factory lies right next to um the factories that orchestrate hunger and thirst this is a survival mechanism we know it from looking at the brain so it
3: seems like um you know cuz dopamine um is all about um the wanting system it's not about the liking system right um, opiates and all that stuff that's liking but so we can like um You know, dopamine signals possibility of a reward, but doesn't guarantee that we'll actually enjoy the reward once we obtain it. Um, So, would you say that like the attachment system might be the only out of the three that's that's more associated with liking?
1: Wow, that's a wonderful question. Um, I you can feel deeply attached to somebody you don't like. You can feel deeply attached to somebody. Maybe so. You know, maybe
3: maybe all good, good point. So maybe it's independent of all three. Like all three can either. You know, only stay in the in the in the wanting system, yeah. uh, but it could also you can also like it. You know, I bet there's lots of people who um, have lust um, uh, for for people that they actually can't stand.
1: <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, certainly you can be in love with somebody who who doesn't share your values, uh, your background, your interests. I mean, I remember reading a quote recently. You know, by a man who said, you know. I am so – I am totally in love with a, a woman in the office. Her name is Emily. Although I know that we have no chance of ever spending a life together, she is an obsession. <laughs> you know? Oh,
3: yes. So the obsession thing is interesting yeah. because you, right. the obsessions happen when it's people we, 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 we shouldn't like.
1: Yeah, know? yeah. And, well, obsession can be for somebody you, you – really do like too. Uh, but, you know, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And when you're feeling attachment, that's not indifferent. Sex drive's not indifferent. And romantic love is not indifferent. The, the emotions can swing from hate to anger, to jealousy, to rage, to curiosity, to intimacy, but they're not indifferent.
3: I like that a lot. Um, so we talk a lot of, in society, we use the phrase animal attraction. Yeah. Um. I mean, aren't we all animals? Like, you know, so all of these systems, even love could be considered animal attraction as well in a way, right?
1: Oh, so, I, you know, I've written uh, five books and my very favorite uh, chapter is in my um, fourth book called Why We Love. And it's the second chapter on animal magnetism.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I
1: love I, that I, book, by the way. Love it. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. I. Yeah. So I... I maintain that the basic animal attraction is romantic love. You know, When you look at prairie voles, like a little field mouse, little prairie vole, and you look at the males when he's suddenly attracted to a female, uh, the amount of activity in the dopamine system increases by 50%. So these animals are feeling the, the wanting when they look at that individual. Now, they're not writing poems. They're not singing songs. They're not building castles to a partner but they're feeling that feeling of attraction. And it is that feeling of attraction that you and I have come with our big cerebral cortex to call romantic love. And when you take a look at everything from elephants to, to uh, oh, to, there was one quote that I found from uh, black rhinos. And it was a female black rhino. This was from an ethologist, you know, describing rhino, black rhino behavior. And the female was just standing there looking at the male and the male was parading in front of her. And he was marching back and forth and he was pulling up bushes and tossing them in the air and swizzling his little, swinging his little tail around. And then I remember the quote, looking for all the world as if he were dancing. Mm-hmm. And you see this throughout the animal community and even among birds. You see jealousy among birds too, and certainly anger and fear, etc. So I think that romantic love is a basic brain system that evolved along with the fear system, the anger system, and many other brain systems, but the, one of the basic survival mechanisms in all mammals that drive us to choose one individual rather than another. So what's more irrational or crazy, um, love or lust? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll only say this. When you go and you ask somebody to have, go to bed with you and they say, no, thank you, you don't kill yourself. Well, some, uh, some males... Um, you know, do go crazy over that. but yeah. They do go crazy, but the people in the crimes of passion around the world right. are not from the sex drive They're because they walk into their own bedroom and wife with another man, that kind of thing.
3: So I feel like there might be a sex difference in that, you know, for, for, for men, maybe getting rejected sexually might be, like, worse uh, feeling than um, being rejected romantically, whereas maybe the reverse is true for women. Do you think that's possible?
1: I actually think it's the reverse. Um, the data show that uh, men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a, when a romantic relationship is over. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's been in books for a long time by psychologists. psychologist. Um, Elaine Hatfield uh, wrote about it. You know, I do this annual study with Match.com called Singles in America, and we don't poll the match population. We poll the American population. And so it's based on the U.S. Census, a representative sample. We got the right number of blacks, whites, Asians, Latino, gay, straight, rural, suburban, urban, every part of the country, every age group, et cetera. And I've always, i you know, we have been busting myths about women for fifty years. I'd like to bust some of these myths about men. And one of the, we find is over every single year we find this: men fall in love more often. They fall in love a lot faster because they're so visual. When they do fall in love, they want to introduce the the uh The woman to friends and family sooner they want to move in sooner men have more intimate conversations with their wives than women do with their husbands because women have their intimate conversations with their girlfriends and men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a the relationship is over so um you know women are the picky sex they're the what sex picky picky
3: sex so the, i mean this is so interesting because you know people have so many of these stereotypes and um, these preconceptions in their head um You know, let's talk about the hookup scene, the hookup culture, which has become very prominent on college campuses. Which our uh, mutual friend Justin Garcia. Yeah.
1: um,
3: Do you still talk to Justin? Oh, I spoke to him yesterday. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I know he thinks very highly of you. Um, Yeah. um, You know, he's done some interesting research showing that a hookup is never really just a casual hookup. Yeah. That that most men and women, you know, boys and girls in college campuses really do. Um, have some sort of thing in the back of their head they hope that it, they hope it kind of turns into something
1: is it you know his, his original study in binghamton university apparently fifty one percent of both men and women uh, when asked why they went into a hookup said that they were hoping to create a romantic relationship and with our singles in America study, we did this same thing, and of course this was a a national study of a much larger and more varied group and um, I can't remember, I guess about 15 to 20% wanted to get to know the person better. What's interesting is then I asked the question, have you ever had a hookup or a one night stand um that, that turned into a long-term partnership? And every year I ask it over 35% say they've had that experience. And I think just like what you said, you know, Casual sex is not casual unless you're so drunk you can't remember who it was. <laughs> Things happen in the brain. I mean, it triggers five of the ten cranial nerves. You really see them, smell them, hear them, taste them, and touch them. I mean, you know, and um, you know, any stimulation of the genitals can drive up the dopamine system and push you over the threshold soul. Tell stomach. me about it. Tell me about it. Oh yeah. Well, that's what happened to me, and. uh and, um, of course, with orgasm, there's a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin, and you can get real feelings of attachment to the person, too. So casual sex is not casual. And, I, you know, I've I've often said to people is that, you know, there's two ways to get the boy or the girl. Either you spend months discussing their college plans or you get them into bed tonight and trigger these brain circuits for romantic love and attachment. And in many respects, I think this hookup culture is actually, oddly enough, Oddly enough, I think it's part of a something that I call slow love. I, I've come to believe that I've been thinking to myself, and you, as a uh, uh, um, as a, as a as a scientist, also. I mean, what is all this casual sex about? Is it casual? What's going on here? I mean, it's a, a lot of metabolic energy when you have sex with somebody. You're spending your time. You're spending your energy. You get your feelings hurt. Uh, you can get sex diseases. Women can get pregnant. Um, there's got to be some reason for this. And so I've come to believe we are in an age of what I call slow love, fast sex, slow love. And it comes from um, um, a lot of studies that I've done, but one of them was particularly pointed to me. Apparently 67% of Americans who are living with somebody are terrified of divorce, terrified of it. And so I've come to believe that what we are doing now is a long pre-commitment stage Before we tie the knot, you know, get to know him first with with having sex with him. Then do go into friends with benefits. So you see them more regularly, but not as a couple. Then you begin to introduce yourselves as a couple. Then you begin to live together. Then you get a prenup just in case that marriage doesn't work. Marriage used to be the beginning of a relationship. Now it's the finale. Yeah, you've said a great
3: quote. I, I forget where, but you said, if you don't want to get attached to someone, you'd be better off not just not sleeping with them. Absolutely. That that, that it, there really is, um, you know, it's good to consider here, you know, because um, casual sex very rarely is just casual sex.
1: Right. And it um, can yeah. turn you off really fast, too.
3: It could what? Sorry, what?
1: Turn you off really fast, too. You know that stuff by Gordon Gallup and others uh, studying kissing? And they asked, I think, over a thousand people, and I think over 50 percent it had... had you know the kiss of death. I mean, they didn't even get in bed together. Just kissing the person one time was the end of it for them. They were beginning to fall for somebody. Then the person <laughs> kissed them, and they said, "Nope, I can't do this." So that, that was a deal breaker. <laughs> did, uh, did their uh,
3: breath stink or something? Say that again. Did the person's breath stink or something?
1: No, maybe he had his mouth open like a rhinoceros. Who's, who's to know? Or maybe he was. Who knows? I didn't. I, that wasn't in the academic article. But we've probably all been there at some point, you know, and. Um, yeah, all the way through courtship, there's these breaking points and escalation points. That's true.
3: Yeah, I think something. I think both me and you are probably fundamentally uh, romantics. Um, you know, I really do have this sort of like um, this romantic ideal in my head about what, what things should look like. Do, do you think there's great value in, um, like, can that be dangerous, like being too romantic?
1: Nobody gets out of love alive unless you don't play the game at all. Nobody gets out of love. love okay. Everybody has times of tremendous ecstasy and tremendous agony, <laughs> tremendous mm-hmm. despair. Uh, I once, there was a study years ago and they asked, you know, have you ever been rejected in love? And um, over 93% of both men and women, I, they asked the question, have you ever dumped somebody who was really in love with you? And the next question was, have you ever been dumped by somebody Who you were really in love with. And about 95% of both men and women said yes to both. And these people were in college. I mean, they've also, now they got their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s to get dumped again or to dump somebody. So, I mean, it's one of the most powerful brain systems the human animal has ever evolved. Uh, And uh, uh, it's going to be with us as long as we survive. I think that's a very poetic, beautiful phrasing. (laughs)
3: <laughs> um, so we can we can uh, we can wrap this up. But before we leave, I wanna I wanna make clear, like I really do believe you are. You know, I've heard you talk a lot, and I do think you're a romantic. You know, and like I'm even a, though you study biology, what do you say?
1: I'm a complete romantic. Yeah,
3: yeah. And you know, even though you, something so unique about you, and you're such a leader. It, it, you you like by far like a leader in this field is because you you bring in so many perspectives that most people don't bring in and tie all together. Um, So you don't just study the biology, but you study the cultural aspect and you study um, contextual aspects. Um, I have a quote here I think that you said to Krista Tippett in a recent interview um, with her. You said, "If, if I die tomorrow, I want people to really know this, that I believe this, that the more we know about the brain, the body, and human evolution, the more we will come to understand the power of culture to change that biology. Biology, culture, religion are all part of humanity. They don't threaten each other. They enhance one another.
1: Scott, I got some reasons I'm crazy about you. <laughs> I, it is exactly true. I, yeah. I think I could say it even better than that. You know, people are scared of biology. The more we get to understand the biology, the more we're going to come to understand the power of culture to change that biology. They go hand in hand.
3: Well, I say we leave on that note because I can't think of a better note than that. Thank you so much uh, for having this chat with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: <laughs> Great. Thank you too.
3: Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next season for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
0: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury,